0: Welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews, a proud member of the Inside Voices Network, and now on Patreon. In this episode, Christy finds meaning in the flowers of Tussie Mussie, I pay attention to the saber-toothed tiger of Honga, Mason builds Egyptian monuments in Imhotep Duel, and Ruth crosses into the land of a thousand and one knights in Five Tribes. But first, Meeple Lady programs robots in quirky circuits.
1: My love for games usually falls under two categories. Brain-melty games that go on for hours on end, and games that are just freaking adorable. Well, Quirky Circuits is definitely the latter. It's ridiculous how cute it is. Just take a look at the box. Front and center, there's a kitty cat on a Roomba, surrounded by its cuddly friends, a sushi robot, a fossil dog, and a garden bee. Quirky Circuits, a two- to four-player game published by Plot Hat Games in 2019, is designed by Nikki Valence with adorable artwork by Danalyn Reyes. The game takes about 15 to 30 minutes, and while I love adorable games, those types of games have to have some substance for me. It just can't be mindless fluff, because I most definitely would not want to play it again. Luckily, Quirky Circuits is a game I love playing again and again. The game comes with four miniatures of a cat, robot, dog, and bee, a deck of command cards for each animal character, and a sturdy spiral laminated notebook filled with scenarios of increasing difficulty. The game recommends playing the first scenario to get a sense of how the game plays, and then moving chronologically through the scenario book. I usually just start with the first one and then let everyone else decide how difficult of a challenge they'd like to undertake. Setup is easy. You just turn the notebook to whichever scenario you want to do, and it lists which character is in play, what the scenario's objective is, and how to set up the board. The notebook opens so that the text is on one page and the gridded board is on the other. Players will have a fixed number of rounds to complete the objective, and that's indicated by the battery marker on the right side of the board, which moves down as each round is completed. Take the matching command cards for whichever animal is in play and deal out four to five cards per player depending on how many are playing the game. Scenarios and quirky circuits include collecting all the dust bunnies and delivering various things such as seed packets, food, and fossils before the battery level hits zero. So now gameplay. This is the part of the game that completely surprised me because I initially thought it would have totally fallen flat for me but our games ended up being so much fun. Chaotic fun, but fun. And here's the kicker. Players can't tell other players what cards they have, and they aren't allowed to communicate with each other during the rounds. There are three phases in a round. The first part is programming. Players all simultaneously, and in whatever order they want to, play cards face-down into one line next to the board in order to program the animal. It's a little bonkers but there's a lot of intense staring across the table, because there is no talking. Command cards each give a simple command, either movement or rotation, and in various amounts. On the back of each card, you can see if it's a movement or rotation card, so players aren't completely blind when placing cards down in this phase. Players can also play any number of cards, unless they have a yellow command card which then must be played first before any other card from their hand. Don't forget, though, players are working together to complete this objective. The rulebook does suggest that if you have to say something, you can do it with a beep-boop robot talk. It turns out there's a million and one ways to inflect those two words. When players don't want to play any more of their cards, they place their hands on the table. The second phase of the round is the execution phase, one at a time, Players turn over the cards in the line and see where the kitty cat on the ruba goes. They often bump into things or get stuck in a corner, but if you program those cards just right, it's so freaking satisfying. It's kind of like watching those videos on Twitter where someone makes an impossible hole-in-one shot. Granted, you can spend time calculating your odds of which card might have gotten played, as each deck tells you how many of each type of cards are in it. Or you can just dive right in and hope for the best and watch the cards unfold and delight in watching where the robot will go next. The last phase of the round is reset. Players draw back up to their hand size, you move the battery marker down a level, and continue playing until you've completed the scenario objective or you've run out of rounds. Quirky Circuits is a great family game that's easy to jump into, but if you don't like silly fun or cooperative games, then Quirky Circuits will not be for you, but for casual game nights with all levels of gamers, this is perfect. It makes you want to play it again and again, and hopefully this time, you'll clean up all the dust bunnies without running into too many chairs. And that's Quirky Circuits! Thanks, Plaid Hat Games, for sending me a copy of this game. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening! Bye.
2: When I first heard about the card game Tussie Mussie, I thought the title was just a catchy nonsense name for a game. As it turns out, a Tussie Mussie was a symbolic flower bouquet in the Victorian era. The various types of flowers had specific meanings, so you could give flowers to a friend or romantic interest and send them a kind of message. So, no emojis or memes back in the day, but they did have this coded language of flowers. Tussie Mussie is a wallet game with 18 cards. It is designed by Elizabeth Hargrave and published by Button Chai Games. The art is by Beth Sobel. Tussie Mussie essentially consists of an I-split-you-choose mechanism in which player A draws two cards, puts one face up and the other face down, and offers them to player B. Player B chooses a card and player A gets the remaining card. This continues until each player has four cards, and then the round is scored according to each person's tableau. A full game consists of three rounds. The cards in Tussie Mussie depict various flowers and offer different ways of scoring points. Some of the cards carry their own points, and this is depicted on the cards with hearts. The majority of the cards work by scoring other cards or scoring some feature of your tableau. For example, the violet card gives you one point for every purple card you have at the end of the round. Your cards stay face-up or face-down throughout the round according to their orientation when you acquire them. Your face-up cards constitute your bouquet, and your face-down cards are called keepsakes. Some cards will take this into account, such as the amaryllis, which gives you points for cards in your bouquet, or the Snapdragon, which allows you to change the orientation of up to two of your cards before scoring. You can look at any of your cards so you know what you have, but other players can't look at your keepsakes. So even experienced players who know the cards won't know what's still in the deck as the round progresses, and you don't have a complete picture of how other players are planning to score their cards. The bouquet versus keepsake element adds some strategy to the very limited number of cards in the game. Tussie Mussy reminds me of Herbaceous, another plant-themed card game with art by Beth Sobel that was reviewed on the Five by by Ruth in episode four and Laura in episode sixty-eight. Herbaceous features a similar mechanism in which the active player chooses between two cards, but instead of the rejected card going to an opponent, it goes into a communal pile and becomes available for others to take. I think of Tussy Mussy as a microgame version of Herbaceous that will fit in your back pocket. With fewer cards, the pacing isn't quite the same, and the decisions are more straightforward. I found that two players is a good number because you won't have any downtime between turns, but it's a quick game anyhow, so you'll be able to accommodate two to four players easily. Like Herbaceous, Tussie Mussie offers a solo mode. The solo version is designed by Mike Mullins and adds a few extra cards. You play against an imagined opponent as if you are a florist having an employee assist you. The employee will make bouquets alongside you, but you don't want theirs to outshine yours. You make a series of card choices based on an added set of turn cards that specify how to play each turn. For example, on your first turn, the turn card might tell you to deal one card face-up and one face-down, then choose a card with the other one going to your opponent, and turn either both face-up or both face-down. This is one aspect that distinguishes the solo game from the multiplayer game. You often have to evaluate your options in terms of the orientation of the cards you distribute so as to maximize your score and hopefully minimize your opponents. There are no fiddly actions or details to keep track of for the opponent other than scoring, and I like the variety that the turn cards add to the game. Without them, every turn would be executed exactly the same and it would get stale quickly. I love games that can fit in my back pocket. Tussie Mussie won't be able to give you the full crunchy experience of a Euro game with a big board and lots of bits, but it's great to take to a casual restaurant or just have something that you can pull out on short notice. It doesn't take a huge amount of table space, either. Beth Sobel's art really pops on these cards. I'm no expert in artistic design, but these flowers seem to have just the right amount of detail. I also appreciate the approachability of the game in the sense that you can basically sit someone down and tell them to pick either the card they can see or the unknown card. With most people, I think you'll be off and running at that point. Tussie Musi was a co-winner of the Gen Cant Game Design Contest in 2018, along with Seasons of Rice by Corey Damey. I love these kinds of microgame contests because they encourage people to be creative with a limited amount of components and they highlight designs and ideas that may not have been seen or created otherwise. I don't know what else Elizabeth Hargrave has up her sleeve these days, but it's been fun to see a simple design of hers that came out prior to Wingspan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at d6cmarie if you want to check out a photo of Tussie Mussie or send me a coded message in flowers. Thanks for listening!
0: As a member of the SabreTooth Tiger Clan during prehistoric times, your main concern is survival. But life is about more than just hunting and gathering, as you hope to establish yourself as your tribe's new leader. Can you gather enough resources, barter with other clans, and attract woolly mammoths to your tribe? And will you remember to pay attention to Hanga, the saber-toothed tiger who threatens to eat all of your food? Friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's look at Hanga, a game by designer Gunter Burkhardt, with art by Stephanie Baum and published by Haba in 2018. In Hanga, players race to a score determined by player count. Each player has a board to track their available resources, fish, berries, mushrooms, and water, along with any mammoths they may attract. On your turn, play your action disc onto one of the spaces surrounding Hanga, the saber-toothed Tiger. Each disc is divided into four sections and feature hands that point in at least two of the four directions. The number of hands is how many times you may take an action. For example, if your disc has three hands pointing to the berry section, you take three berries. No matter what resource or action the hands point to, you must take Hanga into account. If at least one hand points to Hanga, then you've paid attention to him and he leaves you alone. However, if no hands point to Hanga, then he moves to your player board and eats the first available food. At the end of your turn, draw a new action disc. Hanga won't leave until another player ignores him or if you play a bonus card that sends him away. Play continues clockwise as each player places their disc and gathers resources or takes an action. After a player reaches the target score, the round is finished and the most points wins, and that player becomes the new leader of the tribe. One of the first worker placement games that I like to teach to new gamers is Stone Age, another prehistoric theme game. And while Hanga treads familiar thematic ground, it has enough unique mechanisms that make it its own game. It's also arguably a better first worker placement game for new players since it doesn't take as long as Stone Age and is a lot easier to explain. Instead of a standard worker meeple that you place on a spot, you use action selection discs to point at the spots you want to use. I like these discs because it makes the standard worker placement mechanism a little puzzle as you try to figure out the best way to get resources. Usually you'll rotate the action disc until you're grabbing resources from one spot while also petting Honga. There's a way to upgrade your action discs too. Turn in a fish, berry, and mushroom at the mammoth field, and you'll place one of your mammoths from the supply here. Once you get the majority of the mammoth area, you'll draw action discs from another deck. The special mammoth discs are great because they have more hands on them, and many of them have three segments with hands. This gives you the ability to pet Hanga while also getting resources or actions from two other areas. There are several different ways to score points in Hanga. One of the spots on the board is the Pay Homage to the Old Nature Gods mountain, where you move up a space on the mountain for each hand pointing there. This is a fun race within the main race, with the first player to reach the top scoring 5 points, while the others score points based on where their caveperson meeple is. Then all meeples are sent back down to the base of the mountain, ready to race back up like a point scoring Sisyphus. Finally, you can barter with different clans through set collection. Cards in the bartering section give you victory points if you can turn in the right number and types of resources. Again, the number of hands pointing from your action disc determines how many cards you can claim. Sometimes you'll disregard Hanga so you can get two actions done, like gathering resources and going up the mountain. Thankfully, it's not too tough to send Hanga away after he's on your board. Just select the forest section to draw bonus cards. One usually shows up that'll help you get rid of Hanga, or you can hope someone else ignores Hanga so they'll have to deal with him. Haba consistently makes well-designed and well-produced games. The components are beautiful in Hanga, from the little cave people meeples to the threatening and acute way Hanga meeple the board is big and bold, with easy-to-see icons, and the cards feature simple yet effective art. One note, a few cards didn't match up with the rulebook, and I'm guessing some art was probably a last-minute change that didn't get fixed. Thankfully, you can easily figure out what they mean based on the icons from the other cards. While Haba generally markets its games to younger players, Honga is a game that can be enjoyed by all ages. There are decisions to be made throughout the game, from how to align your action disc to what types of bartering you'd like to do. With a variety of simple action spaces combined with its clever use of the action disc, Hanga is a streamlined and adorable worker placement game that works well as an introduction to the genre. And for veteran gamers, it's a terrific way to get your worker placement fix in just 30 to 45 minutes. Thanks to Haba for the review copy of Hanga. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 By. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A.
3: Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Imhotep, The Duel. Wait, Mason? Talking about a newish game? What the hell, dude? I know, it's sick, right? Well, look, occasionally a new game comes out that I do actually like, and no surprise here, it's a Phil Walker-Harding game from Cosmos. We've been covering Phil's games since the beginning of this show. Archaeology back in episode 11, Imhotep and Baron Park in episode 14, Sushi Go in episode 45, Gizmos in episode 54, and here I am today, talking about the 2018 two-player reimagining of Phil's 2016 Spiel Dejar nominated family game, Imhotep. Let's knock out, right from the beginning here, that Imhotep The Duel, which I'm just going to call Imhotep Duel from here on in, is not a crummy Das Kartenspiel Spiel version of a game you already like. This is a completely different game, with similar theming and some of the same basic ideas of its namesake. Like most of Phil's games, you're collecting various items that all score differently. Also, like his other games... You have to make a choice about how many kinds of items you'll attempt to collect. You'll probably lose if you try to get a little bit of everything, but you'll also lose if you only go for all of one thing. You have to diversify, but not too much. Emotep Duel neatly corners you into giving your opponents items you don't want them to have in a way that is frustrating and sometimes infuriating. So, of course, this game has been a big hit in our house. You've each got four workers to place on a 3x3 grid. You take turns placing those workers until one of you decides to unload a boat. The boats correspond to the vertical and horizontal lines in the grid, and each boat has three items corresponding to the three spots where you place your workers. While the scoring and set collection in Duel is pretty similar to original Emotep, the gameplay and the struggle really center around second-guessing your opponent while trying to push your luck on the grid. There's a certain amount of this in the original game as well, but Walker Harding has managed something very effective here in balancing greed with reward. That's an aspect of his work that I have long found exceptional in such accessible games. But unlike the somewhat more randomized boom-and-bust system in archaeology, Imhotep Duel places the mechanism for punishment squarely at the feet of your opponent. For me, this elevates Duel on par with some other classic Cosmos two-player games like Lost Cities or Perry Rodin. We own a lot of small-box two-player games, and I've played almost everything in the history of the Cosmos two-player line. More often than not, the dividing line between the perfectly fine and the very good is simply how much do my actions affect my opponent. One of the reasons Patchwork stands out almost alone among Uwe Rosenberg's small-box two-player titles is that level of non-destructive interaction. While I've enjoyed the Agricola, Le Havre, and Caverna two-player implementations, they're primarily still just smaller-boxed versions of low-interaction euro games. Those are titles that I mostly only play digitally now because I don't really know that they gain something from playing against an opponent. Imhotep Duel, on the other hand, relies heavily on elements of the interpersonal to a degree that I don't know would be enjoyable against an AI opponent. A digital version would of course work just fine, but making decisions based on what you know about your opponent, especially having played against the same person multiple times, and building emergence in long-term gameplay makes Phil Walker Harding games special, even when they're uncomplicated. I talk a lot on this show about playing the same games over and over again with the same person, because for me, the mark of a truly lasting title is our shared desire to play it against one another repeatedly. Unfortunately, the current industry model in Tabletop actively discourages this kind of engagement with games. Because the margins are so thin, a medium-sized publisher without cash flow from evergreen and classic titles has to put out dozens and dozens of games each year, hoping one of them will stick. You buy all those games, because those same publishers give review copies to media outlets which rely on reporting the hottest games possible to keep your viewership and listenership. It's ultimately a self-defeating model, because without the investment of serious time and development, almost none of the medium-sized publishers will end up with the evergreen titles they're looking for to consistently fund their other releases and operating costs. So in this desperate churn of the constant release cycle, we get 3,000 games a year, maybe 10% of which are good. Of those 300 games, maybe 10% are great, which is still 30 games a year, or more than two new games every month. Even if you only bought and played the truly great games, that's still something like $1,000 a year, and for most people, wouldn't leave much time to get old favorites to the table. I'm in a position now where I'm actually only interested in playing the good games, because, frankly, playing great games is pretty exhausting. They're mostly large, expensive, and complex. I'd prefer to take the pool of good games and just pick the 10% that appeal to my taste and theme and aesthetics. No dragons, no capes, no spaceships. Of those 30 games, maybe 10 of them might be great at two-player? We mostly only enjoy family games anymore anyway. I mean, we're perfectly capable of playing much heavier games, but I no longer have the interest in setting them up and relearning them every time I want to play. So the pool of games I have to choose from is fairly limited, but I don't think it's really more limited than it would be if only 500 games came out every year which is still a lot of games. Emetep Duel is firmly in the good category, and good two-player games with themes and mechanics we like are pretty rare. Sadly, it will probably get lost in the wash and warble of the other 5,999 games that have come out since its release. Too bad, too, because it's pretty cheap, under $20 everywhere online, the components in box are high quality, I mean, it's a Cosmos game, so of course they are, and it ticks all the boxes of Phil Walker Harding's brand of set-collecting emergence I've come to love, but using a new core mechanic that's unique without being too gimmicky. So, who should play Imhotep the Duel? People who like interactive but non-combative two-player games. People who like Phil Walker Harding games. People who like set collection games. And people who long for the halcyon days of shipping goods up and down the Nile. I give Imatep the Duel 1,300 out of 1,300 years before Common Era when this game is nominally set. I'm Mason Weaver, you can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost.
4: Hello, Five by Listeners, it's Ruth here. Today I'm talking about a game that has been put on and off of my list of titles to cover more times than I can count. That's because while I love playing the game, I have a hard time recommending it, and not for the reason many people seem to expect. I have no qualms recommending a game with the caveat that it doesn't work well for players who freeze up when considering options. I do have major problems recommending a game that was released with a terrible production decision made that nobody involved seemed to even consider would be offensive as all get out. The problem has technically been fixed, but the fact that original copies were released as they were is a problem. So here we go. Days of Wonder are known for releasing a single title each year. One that will be family weight, beautiful to look at, and just be a solid game all around. Mason discussed the river in episode 57 for an example of this. In 2014, we got Five Tribes. A game designed by Bruno Cathala, illustrated by Clement Masson, and featuring Mancala-esque gameplay. The game board consists of a 5x6 grid of location tiles, onto each of which three randomly drawn meeples are placed and set up. On a player's turn, they pick up all of the meeples from one tile and start moving orthogonally, dropping one meeple per tile that they cross over. The last meeple they drop has to match the color of at least one meeple already on that tile. The player then gets to take actions corresponding to the type of tile location and to the color of the meeple they place last, removing all meeples of that color as they take the action. If doing so completely empties the tile, they also get to place a camel on it, claiming the location for endgame scoring. Tile actions include adding features to increase the value of locations, buying goods at market, and recruiting powerful gin cards, which provide role-breaking powers. Meeple actions include collecting goods, gathering gold, which is basically points, building up sets of meeples for endgame scoring, or assassinating meeples on the board or from in front of your opponents. Players continue playing rounds until there are no legal moves left or until someone has placed their last camel, at which point they use the included score sheet to earn points for basically everything in the game game and then determine a winner. Five Tribes takes randomness to the max. Each player turn changes the options for other players so dramatically that you can't plan ahead in this game. It's all about responding strategically to what's in front of you, which means you can get a lot of downtime if players are struggling to assess their options. Playing the game means having an idea of the action you want to take to reduce the options you're considering, but not being so tied to that idea that you spend forever looking for a move that doesn't exist. Added to the decision space is the fact that each round begins with a turn order auction, in which players bid their points. You want to be sure you're not giving up more than you're likely to earn on your turn. So I really recommend setting aside the idea that going first is better, and only bidding high if you've seen a fantastic move on the board that you don't want others to mess up before you get there. Honestly, most of the time in our games, players don't bid anything or bid really low, and that's how it ought to be. The auction does get a little different in the two-player game, as at this player count, each player gets two turns per round, and so they might wish to bid in such a way that they'd get to take consecutive turns, letting them set up a move on the first turn that'll earn a lot of points on the second. For this reason, a lot of players actually only like to play five tribes at two, since there's that bit more control and a lot less downtime. I like the game at 3 and 4 as well as at 2, but the group does need to be right for those games not to get frustrating. Five Tribes is a fun, quick, if you force yourself to take a chance in the best moves you've spotted, and relatively easy to teach game. But then there's the production issue I mentioned at the beginning. If you were to go out and buy the game now, as well as various goods in the marketplace, you'd also find cards representing fake years. These cards are turned in to increase the value of other actions in the game. But in the original release, those cards were slaves that players purchased at the market to increase the power of their actions later on. An apparent nod to historical accuracy, according to the initial publisher response, the cards featured emaciated dark-skinned men hunched deductively and manacled at the ankles, ready to be used as essentially a wild resource. Why this ever got to publication is astounding. Days of Wonder's argument that Persian culture had slaves means absolutely nothing in a game based on the fantasy of Scheherazade's tales of magic and djinns. Perhaps including someone from the region depicted in the development process might have been a good idea. If you include slaves as a resource in a piece of entertainment, you had damn well be making a statement about the use of said slaves. And unlike the excellent game Freedom the Underground Railroad, the statement here appeared to be that the publisher saw no problem in treating a human being as something to buy and exploit for better actions. They eventually stopped doubling down on their claims of accuracy and replaced the cards with the ears, But it should never have been there in the first place. In the end, Five Tribes is a game I still have, and I still play, but I don't feel comfortable recommending it without stressing that it was a very questionable release. Try before you buy, given the polarizing gameplay that many don't like, and if you do buy, I would suggest the secondary market to limit publisher gain, though you will want to carefully assess what cards are being included in an older copy. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. This has been the
0: Five By, your five-stop shop for rapid-fire board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5By Games, like us on Facebook at facebookcom 5By Games, join our BGG Guild number 2810, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and check out our website at 5bygames.com. If you like what we do here on the Five By and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 5Bygames. Thanks for listening and happy gaming.
4: 5
2: by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com